This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to the latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our guest, Scott Homan, who is the director of Witness Underground, a documentary film that exposes the lives of artists inside a cult as they battle the limits imposed on them, explore the emotional abuse imposed by shunning, and discover that art is a powerful healer. And I'm Mary Elkins. Scott's father joined a cult when he was a teenager, or preteen, actually. Scott formed a band inside the cult and did a lot of recording. Currently, Scott has a company called Banana Island Films. We will hear how that all came to be and all about his escape from the cult. Welcome, Scott. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy and Mary. I really appreciate it. Great to have you. Please tell us about your background and how you found yourself in a cult. So my father, as you mentioned, um, probably in his early 30s when he had three kids at that point, joined this religion. No one really joins a cult on purpose. They join what they think is a good thing and it's better for their lives, for their family. And then later you find out the damaging aspects of that organization. And so he he joined this and tried to get our family roped into it. And it successfully, they did. My parents, my mom never really joined it, but like kind of went along with it as a, like, oh, it's a church. And it's probably good to do that. And so they tried to raise our kids in this, what they thought was a safe environment. And they had friends that also had kids in that place. So for them, it was probably like a social draw as well. And you know, for the most part, it was, I had a pretty balanced life, I would say, because my mom wasn't really fully invested in it and never really joined. And my dad was busy as a working father trying to raise kids. So like the amount of time that we were having this effect of the cult imposing effects on our family or teaching negative things on our family to our family, it wasn't as strong as the average born in person because we were like Mm -hmm. the new people in the, in the congregation. Um, So that being said, it did have some effects on, on our lives and especially mine. And it took a long time to kind of like break away from it. And it wasn't just one thing that, was negative or that woke me up, but like many, many, many hundreds of little things that eventually like piled up to the point that I had to like finally walk away from it. And that was in my mid twenties when I finally got away. Like I went away at 19 then I kind of went back to it on my own terms, but anyway, so I got, it's been a very strange, atypical challenge in that with my life and relationship to that cult. But, um, and I wanted to make this film because I learned what, what makes this religion or this group a cult is exactly the thing that you mentioned, which is shunning in your, in your introduction about my film. My film specifically discusses the deep, goes into a deep dive about how shunning affects our lives and how damaging and how much emotional, how it's an emotional abuse tool that they use to retain people and to punish people. It's like 
a form of punishment. Can you explain that a little further? Uh, what was your own experience inside this cult? Um, okay. Inside the cult, their, their way of getting control over your life is to eliminate your hobbies and passions. Not really, They kind of punish you for having them and try to redirect you into spending all of your time doing what they want you to do, which is to, in the case of this one, spend all of your time reading and intaking indoctrination materials. So they have like three church events every week. Plus they want you to go preaching door to door to teach others about the cult as a sales aspect. So that you're sort of owning the, the face and voice of this cult and trying to convince others. So you kind of separate yourselves from average society or normal society to take on this, to represent this other group. Um, and so in that way, it's maybe not so much to try to get new followers as it is to keep you, as a separate group and, and also people are slamming their doors in your face. You, you have to go preaching or you get punished for not doing that. And you're getting doors slammed in your face, people yelling at you and being in neg- kind of being negative. And that creates this form of what, what's called persecution complex. So mm-hmm. they want you to feel otherized or different than the average person. And when you go back to your group and tell them how someone slammed the door in your face, they tell you, they give you comfort, like, oh, well, you know, we're fighting for God. And like, we're supposed to expect persecution and punishments like this. And now, you know, we're rallying together to, we're, we're, on, we're on God's side and he, we're his only people and they're the enemy. Uh, it, it creates a, I don't know, ne- very negative worldview. And they're also always preaching that the end of the world is coming. So it's a doomsday cult as well. Yeah. And they're not the first one. They're not the last one probably, but mm-hmm. that, that worldview of, always seeing the outside world as dangerous that God hates them. And you're the only loved group. It's, it's very strange to, to grow up around that kind of society. Mm. But they did let you do your music within that. Right. So that that's where my mom's influence comes in where she was like, well, you know, they're not hurting anyone. They could be out, you know, doing drugs or being vandals or something as teenagers, but like, why is music? And she was a musician as well. She played saxophone mm. in a jazz band as a teenager before having kids. So for her, it was like, oh, it's like the kids are, we know this is a healthy thing. Let, let them play music with their high school friends. So we had this kind of leniency balanced view from my mother's side. And my dad also allowed it. He could have put his foot down and said no, but he was also somehow balanced in that way. And Oh, nice. What did yeah. you play and what kind of music? I played guitar and sang and wrote my own music. And I played music with a lot of different variety of people. But for the most part, I was influenced by like grunge of the early 90s and mid 90s. And mm-hmm. later that became like skate punk from South California, a lot of bands out of that area. But that was like a global scene as well. Like there's some Swedish bands I was really into. Um, but kind of like up, I don't know, kind of poppier, more fun punk rock if you will so it's it's mm-hmm. like catchy melodic but mm-hmm. a little bit noisy a little bit like i don't know giving a middle finger to society a little bit i learned a lot about my like political views or like my life philosophy from the punk rock world mm-hmm. which is and a little bit of teenage angst and like anti-authority which is kind of a funny contrast right like i was attracted to that but also living in an authoritarian cult which imposed a lot of restrictions on my life and like what clothing i could wear how i could wear my hair like personal appearances, wow. things, use of language, what I can, what activities I can and cannot do with my life while also going to punk rock shows as a teenager <laughs> and playing music in bands, like a funny dichotomy, like kind of two extreme polar opposite ends. And right. you could listen to the music too. Yeah. What's that? 
I listened could, to that music. It, yeah, it, yeah, that was also people. off limits. Yeah. It was off limits for a lot of Je- uh, this, so we didn't tell what cult it is yet. Um, but I'll just offer it. But Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of restrictions on music, and that was the group that my parents joined. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have those restrictions. I was allowed to listen to whatever I wanted to, and I had very specific conversations with my father. He's like, I know all these other people in church are making their kids throw away their music if the parents find out they have you know secret punk rock or secret metal or hip hop. Um, like you can't have that music, but I'm not going to put that restriction on you. I want you to decide what music you think is okay. And like, use your own conscience to develop your own relationship with God. Like, mm. thanks dad. I appreciate you not going through my records and throwing them away. I've heard a lot of stories like that while I was a teenager where my friends were having their music thrown away or oh. made the kids smash their own records and CDs with a hammer mm. in front of their parents. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really unnecessary to destroy art. And like, you're going right. to get it anyways from your kid, your friends and listening to the radio. So like, I don't know. It's, it's a strange yeah. thing for that religion to impose on people. And what were some of your motivations to create the Witness Underground documentary? So one of the big surprises, like I mentioned, my family wasn't so strict in the religion. But when I finally, after like a very, like I said, 19 is when I first made a big stand kind of against the religion. But I went back to it on my own terms. Then I finally left when I was 27 um, properly. Like I was like, I'm done, done. Like, and these are the reasons why. And I talked very openly with my family about those reasons why. And for a couple of years, there was, and I hadn't been around them for like a decade. I've been, you know, see them once a year kind of thing. So I was traveling, living in other States, doing my job, being an adult, young adult. Um, When I finally put my foot down and was like, I'm done with this. They did this thing that the religion teaches you, you have to do to someone who walks away. And in my case, I didn't commit any sins that they were upset with that they could kick me out for. I just was committing thought crime, like in an Orwellian yeah. sense. Like I didn't believe, and I was telling them that I didn't believe certain aspects of the religion. Mm-hmm. And that is like the worst punishment you can, or the worst thing you can do in that religion is commit thought crimes and disbelieve. So they call that apostasy. And apostasy isn't just you don't believe what you were taught as a child by your parents, or your culture. It's like, for them, that word means you actively fighting against the God of the universe with your untrue lies. And you want to tear down their religion and, and break their faith and, and cause them to lose their access to the afterlife, which is like a very different definition. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wasn't doing that. I was just trying to like help my parents read the Wikipedia about how evolution works or like learn about what the Bible says here and but how that like in contrast it's in contrast to the evidence that we have from archaeologists. Um, for example, what Anyways, did they like, say to them? They were very in opposition to that, and it, it, it like challenged their faith in a way that made them uncomfortable. And also, the programming that they're taught from this cult is that you have to resist that. And like, I would say something about evolution, for example, and like what it says in Wikipedia in three paragraphs, and there they would turn on their cult programming, which would say like, "Well, you know, the theory of evolution is." is just a theory. I'm like, well, yeah, but gravity is just a theory, but like, there's a lot of evidence to support that gravity is real. There's like millions of people have done scientific research that you know, discusses how evolution is like how nature kind of works. So we have a lot of, I'm not trying to defend or debate like the origin of the universe here. I'm just like, I want you to like think for yourselves and, and like read what, you know, the other opposing ideas. And so that would just turn them like, Oh my God, we can't talk to you anymore, which is what the religion tells them like they can't have a relationship with their own child because i have i i read different information and i have different ideas about what god is 
or if God is real or not. And anyway, they can't have that conversation. They can't be, they can't have me in their lives. If I hold those on my, those ideas in my head, whether we talk about it or not, just the fact that I represent those ideologies in opposition to their faith means I can't be in their lives. So they started shunning. So that's like, brings me to what my film is about. Ah, Uh, well, how mm -hmm. do you personally connect with this story that you created about the uh, cult and also with the people in the film? So my story is, is really in there. I don't, I'm not in the movie and and I don't speak in the movie. It's all spoke spoken by the interviewees, the five musicians that all knew each other. So it's about, it takes place in a music scene in, in a city where I, near where I grew up in Minneapolis. And these five musicians knew each other as young adults and teenagers, and they all made music together and art together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also, so my, I was going to say my story is like autobiographically in the movie in a sense, because I had a very parallel, similar story in that I made music or at the same time that they were making music in a different state, we met each other because of the music that we were both making and mm-hmm. their exit out of their religion were all for five different reasons or five different individuals. And mine was also a little bit different, but there's some parallels and those parallels are captured in the movie. And the parallels for me would be that music was sort of an outlet. As I discussed, listening to music, making music was a beautiful outlet that kind of was a coping mechanism and a path to healing and like also self-realization and, um, self-awareness in having my own voice, which that religion doesn't really want you to have your own voice. They want you to have their voice. They want you to repeat what they say. And, and then mm-hmm. my realizations were similar to one of the main story arcs in the film. Like there's an emotional arc and, and, and that's carried by a woman and her story. And then there's a logical arc, which is carried by a man and his exit and his exit talked about the, the flood legend of the Bible, like the Noah flood, like, well, is the, is there evidence for the flood? And he goes into his research, his, his big question he poses in the film that is sort of like the, the turning point to act two in the film that we have, we are dropped into the culture. What is music like? What did they make? What was their culture? How did they exist inside this cult humanizing the cult experience? And this moment happens where he has this question. And the question is, is the garden of Eden a viable ecosystem? And he, tries to answer that question with logic and with his understanding of science and the natural world. And he dives into this rabbit hole. He does research and he finds out that like, well, the the garden of Eden and the Noah's Ark story are sort of tied together in the Jehovah's witness, that Jehovah's witness um, worldview that are very important. And they're sort of young earth creationists and that they believe that the earth is, or that the life on earth is young. It was magically created by God in a poof of, moment because god's all powerful and and now we're at the end of the world and like it's all like this one big theological worldview that they have and if you pull on one string of that and you think like well one if this isn't true like what proof is there for this flood legend that's so important to the jehovah's witness worldview and ideology and if he was trying to find evidence that there is a flood or was a flood mm-hmm. and he starts finding out that well there's trees in california the methuselah pine tree that's older than the global flood that apparently killed all things on the planet. Well, what else is there? Oh, there's you know this other you know m- many many lists of evidence that he kind of just like rattles off in the film that like he's like I'm pulling on the science strings and I was finding out that there was evidence and, and, and valid idea I- ideas I could I could find evidence for and, and 
I couldn't find those same kinds of evidences for what the Jehovah's Witnesses were teaching or the Bible was apparently like, it's what, what it says in the Bible. So there was no evidence for it, this thing that he was taught. And I had a very similar sort of unraveling moment where I was like, well, I'm going to finally give myself the permission to do this research on a doubt or question that I have. And it was actually the very similar question, like what evidence is there for the flood? And I found no evidence for it at all. And he finds no evidence for it at all. And we were trying to actively prove with our own bias that this is true, which is not doing real research, but what in the end, trying to buy it, like in a biased way, prove that his own beliefs were true. He found no evidence for it. And he's like, well, what, what does that mean? If there's no evidence for this and the church has been teaching this, then they've been teaching lies. And if they've been teaching lies about this, what other teachings have they been lying about? And he started doing, like researching the quotes that they were using in their own publications to validate their own beliefs. And they have many, many, many books. It's a publishing Mm. company that you're actually worshiping in this religion. They just want you to buy their books and magazines Mm. and sell immortality (laughs) to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, like all you have to do is, is give up your whole life, all your passions and your dreams and your occupation and, and submit to us and become a slave. And then you'll have immortality after you die is like, their big thing it's but it's not exactly a great selling point right but everybody wants this immortality that joins this thing anyway so is my story in my film not directly but indirectly yes and and i and i'm so happy to get those interviews because they they matched my sort of path out of this religion in such a close way and um it's a story i've been wanting to tell for many years and i didn't really know how to tell it until i met i reconnected with all these artists i had known when i was in my early 20s in this faith, we've kind of kept in touch loosely. And I was like, you know, I'd love to interview you guys about this, maybe like do a documentary style episode for a YouTube channel I'm thinking about starting. And then it turned into a whole movie. So it's been sort of like a passionate activism, telling an important nuanced spiritual story or like the loss of spirituality or like the growth of a, a young adult to an adult, like a loss of innocence, but like a growth to like a new chapter, an awakening mm-hmm. story. It's like there's so many different elements, right? It's hard yeah. to tell that. It film. sounds like it was really healing for you. Deeply. Well, music yeah. plays a huge role in the film Witness Underground. So That's how true. has self-expression influenced you? Um, in that time, in my early 20s, I was in a band that with my friends from high school, not related to this religion. And that was fun. And I learned what it was like to be in a band and go on tour and play live for audiences mm-hmm. and to do the work of making an album, tracking an album. That was super fun. And then in that, I was inspired to make an album. So those same guys from that band helped me record my own album. And then I ended up turning that into a band that I fronted. And all that was very secular, like non-religious, like songs about relationships and like growing up, basically. I was, I was a teenager when I wrote most of those. And that was fun. I think I was 21. No, I was 20 when, that, when we made that album. And I formed my own band in the religion, which is fun. Um, and I played a lot of like Jehovah's Witness graduation parties and, and like very innocent teenager type stuff, right? And it's still fun. Like I love what I made, um, but it's still, it's funny because I'm 42 now. So it's like an entire, you know, feels like a different lifetime ago when I made that. It's a very different voice than what I have now. Um, but music has always played a, a big role in my life. And, and I had like a very strong foundation of music in my early life. And meeting these artists, I... And also artists in my previous film, I realized like music, like as much as I wanted to be a rock star as a teenager, like in following the vein of like Nirvana and uh, Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine, like those 90s, like power, powerful bands, it's a strong message. Um, 
I realized meeting these other artists that they were much more serious about music than I was. And I had a much stronger interest in visual arts and maybe making a music video to support them in their careers of music. And I started doing that with all the artists I was meeting. because I was like, well, your art's amazing. I know how, what it takes to be a great artist from trying so hard to be an artist and realizing I'm kind of like a mediocre or like an amateur. And, but I like, well, like I noticed how much more talented they are than me. I want to support their efforts. So like banana Allen films, like was made with a bunch of singers, um, or vocalists from other like heavy music bands and artists I met. And we, we created like a music scene film in Vietnam where I used to live for five years. And it was like when you, you were talking about off camera that your child went to art school, film school, like I kind of took my time abroad and turned that into like a five-year film school where I made lots of documentary pieces and it helped make music videos. And eventually we made like a film. Um, so music has like been the core foundation of, of all the creative work I've done throughout my whole life. And I think my, maybe my biggest contribution besides telling my story and the story of these other people in Witness Underground was doing the soundtrack. First, Witness mm-hmm. Underground was so rewarding mm-hmm. because music has this beautiful way of cutting through all the noise and giving you an emotional reaction immediately, no matter what mm-hmm. your political background is or your lifestyle or your cultural background. Music is like deep, core human reaction. It happens immediately whether it's good mm-hmm. or bad, but making, I, I had 30, yeah, go ahead. That's so true. It is really true. You, you, and you seem very, very well adjusted. Um, <laughs> this For being a post-cult member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But, um, and you talked about self-expression. It's a valuable path to healing, wasn't it for you? Definitely, yeah. And yeah. I feel like this movie is another form of self-expression. Like, what is your personal voice? Well, I wanted to make a story from my home city, my home region, following artists that were very similar to me and like being able to express my life journey through these other artists and their path was like, I, just, I feel like my whole like story is tied up in this film in a sense, even though I'm not shown in it. Well, what was mm-hmm. your personal journey as far as this healing and, and learning how to express yourself? What I was going to talk about a second ago was the soundtrack. And like, it took me like three months yeah. to put that together. And, and somehow like, that was a deep emotional journey for me. Mm-hmm. It's like recognizing what I feel in the stories that I've captured and how I would, how I want to not distract from that message that this person is saying, but like, match their emotion and maybe enhance the emotion of the message, enhance the power of the message in a way that the audience might not even notice, but they feel. And um, I don't know, that's a little off topic, but. How many minutes does the film run? It's 83 minutes. Oh, that's a good, long, juicy, juicy feature. feature. Yeah. Yeah. And And it starts um, out, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, I wanted to ask what was the issue that finally pushed you over the edge to decide to reject the way of life in the cult? Or uh, do you believe something now that replaced it? Two great questions. And I did dive into the one about the the flood legend and trying to search for Mm -hmm. that. I did do the same thing as that, the kind of the main coming out moment or waking up moment that the, one of the main interviewees has, but I had another moment where I was at church and the last moment I was at church was um, a man. I was in a Spanish-speaking congregation in Colorado, and that's a 
whole other story, but like I, I, I did missionary work, quote unquote, in, in Ecuador. So I learned Spanish for that, this religion in a sense, and also for my personal travels. Um, but he was giving a speech in Spanish that was very homophobic. Mm. And this was sort of like, I'd already been doing the research on this flood legend and like in the last few weeks, and I'd had kind of a traumatic like um, ailment where I was like, had to go to the hospital. So I was like, kind of having like, existential crisis at in my mid twenties. And, um, I went to church after that and I was listening to this guy give like this talk very much anti, anti LGBT or homophobic. And I, and I just had this like realization wake up moment where I was like, I am surrounded by homophobic people that are spouting hate from their stage and people are nodding their heads along with this. Like, yeah, God is going to lightning strike the gaze, literally a quote from a woman that was like a wife of an elder in the church. And I just like looked around and I was like, Oh my God, like this creepy, like hair standing up on the back. Like I'm surrounded by cult members who are totally indoctrinated by a dangerous mind control organization. Hmm. And they're all slaves. And I don't want to be one of them anymore. And I got Hmm. up in the middle of church and like walked out and never went back. So that was, that was important. Overwhelming moment for sure. And courageous, wow. very courageous. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you identify now that you're no longer associated with faith? That's a great question because there's a lot of discussion about that for ex-cult members. Like, do you take on the label of no longer being a part of that particular cult? And there is a label like XJW for ex-Jehovah's Witness. That is, I use for all of my branding and marketing. And like, that's a big market audience, right? And they're wonderful people who've gone through a similar thing. It's like when we meet, it's like amazing because we, it's almost like you're two military veterans who've gone to the same war and you're coming back to meet at the VFW and you're like, let's share war stories and like camaraderie and like no one gets it, you know? So when you, when you go, when you meet someone, it's amazing. You can like have a four hour conversation and like unravel like incredible stories that you never do that with an average person who hasn't gone through something like that even if I meet an ex-Mormon or an ex-Orthodox Jewish person or someone else who's gone through something similar or parallel, like there's a lot you can say. Um, so hanging out to that identity is, it's fun, it's beautiful, and it's like, it will be a part of me, but I don't want to live in that space forever. I don't want to just identify as someone who used to be something. And that's the same mm-hmm. thing with um, when I left, and it's kind of a small message in the film, is these, the people in the, in the film, they realize they don't believe in God. And at that moment of their waking up, like not only is this religion spouting falsehoods and lies and twisting and controlling and doing mind control things and turning me into a slave, all of it's fake, even the supernatural worldview, all of it, even God isn't real. So for, and we've all talked about this a lot because it's been 15 years for, or more for everyone in my movie and myself since leaving this group. So we've talked a lot about like, well, are you an atheist? And like, sure, on paper, if you can name the God, like specifically, do you believe in Thor? Like, well, no, I don't worship Thor and I don't believe he's a real person. But like, is there a supernatural, all powerful being that overrules the universe or started life or whatever? Um, That's a different question. But if you name the God, this is one of my, this is like the main guy in the film. He says this in a recent interview we did. Um, Then, yeah, I'm probably an atheist towards that particular God. Like, I don't believe in Vishnu. I don't believe in, um, you know, hmm. Krishna, whatever, <laughs> but is atheism 
really a good identity to label yourself with because it's sort of saying, well, I don't believe in the thing that you believe in. So therefore that's my identity. Like I would like to say that I'm more of a humanist, for example, like I care about humanity and I appreciate people of all cultures and walks of life. And I think that they, they have value and I respect them as equals would be something I would say I identify with much more than saying I'm an atheist. And I don't really want to debate religion or the existence of the supernatural or not mm-hmm. with my time. It's not something I'm passionate about, but I'm passionate about humanity and telling a social impact story and helping people get away from dangerous control systems like cults, <laughs> for example. Well, and talk I feel about like I'm doing shunning that. because shunning is the main theme of the film. And uh, sure. is this something that has influenced your life a lot? That's a great question. I'm glad you came back to that because it was, we were, you'd been, one of you had asked that question. So after telling my family, I just believed in getting sort of a punished for the thought crime, the the punishment was shunning. And it's sort of like, if you smoke a cigarette, you have sex with someone you love, or you break any other minor rule, you're shunned immediately. Day one, ultimate punishment. You never speak to your family for the rest of your life. So that's what my reality is and why I'm like, I'm inspired to make a film that portrays this what is otherwise known as a benign religion filled with well-meaning people who knock on your door talking about Jesus as a very dangerous, sadistic cult because they destroy families, and which is the fabric of society. Like I have, haven't had a conversation with my parents or my siblings since 2010. How many siblings years. do you have? I have four siblings. Do you talk it's to them? so sad. So I... I have to give some like nuanced clarity. My little brother in Germany, when I go there, he won't communicate with me on the internet. But if I go to Germany and I show up, he will like hang out and pretend everything's normal. And for that, I appreciate him. Like there's some amount of love left in him that he's willing to like break all the rules. Like if he did that and people in his church knew that he was hanging out with, they were hanging out with me. Like he could lose, he could be shunned by his whole community and the rest of my family as well. Just Mm -hmm. for doing, just for hanging out with someone who's being shunned. You're not allowed to break the barrier. You're supposed to erect a wall and that wall must remain there forever to show your love for God. Or the the risk is that you lose your access to immortal life. (sighs) And it's, it's so, they're so twisted that they control them with this like carrot on a stick. Like someday, you know, you're going to live forever. So never talk to your family again. Jeez. And wow. they even isolate themselves from people who are just non-believers. Like, well, don't really hang out with your family. You can't go to any holiday or family events if they're around the holidays. Like, they're really like isolate themselves into like their own little bubble. And honestly, like, after hearing this, you might say like, oh, this you know film director Scott that made Witness Underground, he's a he's he's a victim of cult abuse. And it's like, yeah, sure, I could. I could have that label, but I, I see the people that are in the religion as the real victims here because they're still trapped and they're still being manipulated by this overarching, like these overlords in New York, <laughs> you know, these yeah, eight well, dudes, nine, nine guys now. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. faith and religion and what role do faith and religion play in society? That, what do mm. you think about that? That's a great question. I, I see there's still value and, and I'm, you know, speaking as a, a light atheist, <laughs> but as a humanist, um, I see value in church and congregations as a structure because they sort of, you can walk into a church and be shown love and community on day one. 
to any walk of life, any level or economic level. You can walk into a church and people will talk to you. They might, you know, they might not give you their full access to their lives, but homeless people can walk into a church. People that are hungry can walk into a church and, and maybe get some food. Like there's, it's providing value that there isn't much of a replacement for that in the secular world. And mm-hmm. governments have programs, but they're really bureaucratic and really hard to access. You can get kicked out of those too. So it doesn't really catch everyone. Like the church model and even temples in other countries seem to catch the people at the bottom. And for that, there's value. In com- with the community aspect, there's value. Like it's hard to find um, obvious community in society in the secular world as easy as it is in the spiritual world or church world. Like as a secular person, and I'm very outgoing, I can go, I like mountain biking and rock climbing. I can go to a rock climbing gym and make friends today and go out rock climbing with them and maybe develop a friendship. And I, and I do that and it's wonderful, but not everybody has that sort of outgoingness or they don't necessarily have those mm-hmm. kinds of passions to like go find some mutual interest with another human being. Churches provide that for people have that have no interests that are obvious or like they don't, they're not outgoing and they're like, Oh, I love Jesus. And they're like, cool. You're in, you know, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still value there, but I feel like if you give um, respect or see not respect, if you put someone on a pedestal, like the Pope or the Dalai Lama, um, that that person has power over a billion. Those people have power over a billion people each totally separate two different billions, you know, and, and I feel like the power they hold is very dangerous. And one person can say something like the Dalai Lama regrettably said something negative recently about women and that he, he apologized for it, which is bigger than most leaders, but that power, I mean, he just upset half of a billion human beings and maybe polarized men against women in that culture by making that negative statement. And mm-hmm. why, why should, and this is the Christopher from Christopher Hitchens, uh, who I respect a lot. He's since passed, but he wrote this wonderful book called God is not great. That influenced me that like no one should have that kind of power over society, but we have these structures that are thousands of years old that elevate someone to this pedestal position and their voice means more than any other voice on the planet to this group of people, you know, it's mm-hmm. dangerous. And we do that with our political structures. We do that with like startups, even like this person deserves all the money. So like push all the money, funnel it to the top. And then we like worship this cult, this startup leader, like Steve jobs, like he's a God. And then we were like, want the iPhone. Mm-hmm. We're like, Oh my God, the iPad's amazing. You know, like <laughs> The same structures are repeating all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure that it's healthy, but it's like human nature somehow. Mm-hmm. But these structures of control exist in all those different forms too. Like humans, even a coaching guru or whatever a personal coach could have the same kind of structure on a smaller scale in your personal life. Well, back to filmmaking for a second, what part (laughs) of the filmmaking process would you say shows your strongest creative influence? I'm going to go back to the soundtrack because I put my heart and soul into that. And I feel like it, the emotional arc there, Mm-hmm. Um, it's using all of the artists that are in the film that they made as Jehovah's Witnesses and then through their transition of leaving that group, yeah. they're coming out albums to soundtrack their own stories. And like that was like, unfortunately, but part of my process was like probably too much whiskey and wine over many, many evenings and weekends in my free time. Um, like, and long walks, putting on their music and getting like into the emotion of it and like putting that music to the story and feeling it and crying. Mm. 
Yeah. To like to get the story to work in a way that like invoted or evokes the emotion that I intended or the person speaking intended. That was like powerful for me to do. I can't wait to watch this film. I, I was thinking the same thing. It. I only wish I had had a chance to watch it before we talked today. But I'm Well, you've done a great job it. of getting out yeah. important moments, even though you haven't seen it. So I appreciate oh, that. You're great good. interviewers. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Well, Scott, what would you like our listeners and our viewers to have as a takeaway, the main takeaway today? Well, it would be amazing if you supported the film and you can do that by checking out the website and there's this whole business philosophy of like no like trust. Like I've tried to put everything we've done in the last seven years onto the website in terms of the series that we worked on called XGW coming out, like coming out stories of leaving this faith and the, the witness underground podcast, which is like birthed from the making of this film, the witness underground documentary. And out of that, we also we're trying to create like five X the value of just going and watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's a movement. It's like the, the underground word isn't just about underground music. It's like there's a movement of activism to help people get out and like heal after leaving this cult. And we have an artist grant program, the mm-hmm. XW artist grant. So 20% of all the money that comes in through our Patreon. It's like to watch the movie right now is $10. There'll be other avenues to watch it for free with ads on Tubi and other streaming platforms that you're used to on your smart TV. But right now this is the one way to fully support the project. And 20% of the, proceeds go to supporting other artists making new art that helps them on their healing journey. Do you have any so advice that was, for like people? Big, Do you have any advice for people who are looking to escape any cult? Um, step one is to stop, stop taking in the propaganda, like stop participating and reading their, their media, stop listening to their broadcasts that they do their videos. Um, it's cult indoctrination. So like cutting, giving yourself some free time away from it is step one. And then you're going to need to like, it's like if you're stuck or you're in one of these worldviews, whether you, no matter what the reasons are you got there, at some point you have to go on a deep dive, like allow yourself the freedom to go research the question that you have, go research the doubt that you have about what you're being taught. Um, that, that's the biggest thing. Anyone who wakes up from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they all say, like, I gave myself the freedom to go do the research. It took me one Google search and 20 minutes to dissolve my entire belief system and worldview. And then the carpet was ripped out from underneath me. And I had to, and I went down into a rabbit hole and it was really hard, but it was worth it because now I'm free. But like giving yourself that moment to go research the thing they tell you not to research is important. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Scott. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Scott Homan, director of the film Witness Underground and the series XJW, coming out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Please visit his website, witnessunderground.com, to find out all about his cult escape documentary. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Kathy. It's been a wonderful interview. I've loved it. Thank you. And we always like to remind our listeners to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. Drop us a line if you'd like to on our website, lateboomers.biz. And please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and watch us on YouTube on our Late Boomers podcast channel. We always strive to inspire, entertain, 
and motivate you on our Late Boomers podcast. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.